Good morning, everyone. Today our reading is Acts 5, 25 through 40. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in, in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of, of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. All right. Thank you. Good morning. Everybody good? Camping was cold. I was there. It's cold. And... It was a clear, beautiful sky, lots and lots of stars, and so people are like, let's sleep out into the stars, and then it rained, <laughs> and they learned about camping in Florida. And, uh, <clears throat> okay, so um, you may have noticed, you may not, you know what, I'm going to turn some lights, our, our screen is like dying a little bit, try not to set feedback here, uh, our screen is dying a little bit here, um, so we turn the lights down so that you can see what's happening. Uh, not just because it's cool to be in the dark. Um, no, our, our, our projector's crappy. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm turning it up so I can see you because I felt like this morning, first it was at 9 o'clock so nobody was here, but I felt like nobody was here. Um, I didn't like it. Okay, so you may have noticed I did not read um, up everything before verse, I think it's like 17 to 25. Um, I'm getting into like a thing where Luke is repetitive, the author of the book of Acts. He wrote the book of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. It's part one and part two. And it gets repetitive because he's reemphasizing some of the things that the the Christians are doing. So I'm going to do like a Netflix recap real fast and talk about what I'm not talking about necessarily because I've already sort of talked about it and I'll sort of touch on it as we go. Um, I'm trying to focus in on the important stuff so we can make some progress through the Bible and so that when I get to the book of Romans, we're not all middle-aged and our kids are grown and our kids never actually got to hear what happened? Okay, so here's a bit of a, of a, of a recap here. Um, uh, so first off, in, uh, in verse 12 through 16, uh, what you see is 
um, the church continues to meet on the porch of, of the temple in the colonnade. Now, so we have this idea that the early church was just meeting in like these houses or they started buying property and meeting like this. They didn't actually buy property like this until like the third century, by the way. So put that out of your mind. They, they were house churches. They met in house churches, um, uh, actual physical houses. Many of them moved in together and lived together um, as uh, hippie communes. I don't know, like that, but that's, they kind of lived like that. Um, and what we see is the church continuing to meet sort of on the, on the porch of the colonnade. They weren't necessarily at the very beginning meeting in these houses. They were still considered Jews. They were a Jewish sect. And so they are meeting in that sort of Solomon's porch, right? Right, I've shown you with, with all, the, all the pillars. And as they're meeting, they're getting bigger and bigger. You know, hundreds of people gathering. It's getting bigger and bigger, approaching a thousand people or so. And, and these, uh, these Jewish people, peasants, families are coming and going to the temple at different times of the day. And the Christians are there, they're meeting and they're praying and they're teaching about Jesus. And by and large, like it's a public church in, out in the open for everyone to see. And so these Jewish believers are coming. And, and so for the most part though, as they're passing by, they were thought of as, as like they were well honored. Everyone loved what the Christians were doing. Everyone agreed, like, sort of like, yeah, they're, they're us. They are Jewish Christians. They are a part of, of the temple and, and the, the culture of what we're doing. So in verse 13, it tells us they were highly respected by everyone, all of the Jews, and they come, uh, they come, through, the, that, that come through the temple every single day. Um, in verse 14, it talks about how they continued to grow in number, um, becoming, like, bigger and bigger in a formidable assembly. And that's why... Um, it sort of begins to butt up against the leaders of the temple. So, but what, what Luke is always emphasizing is all of the things that Jesus did in Luke's first book, the, the Gospel of Luke, is exactly what you see the church doing in Luke's second book, the Gospel of Acts. It's a mirror image of each other, right down to the place where Jesus reads the passage and everyone is stunned and the apostles quote the quote the passage and everyone is stunned. And then it's, it begins to say that they taught in the temple just like Jesus. They gathered the sick to heal them like Jesus. The lame, the handicapped, all of them are being brought to him on mats just like Jesus. And they're laying out before them and being healed. People are coming from rural areas outside the city and they're all bringing the sick. It's exactly the things that Jesus was doing. That is what the church was doing. Same stuff. Um, and then in verse 17 through 24, uh, we begin to see the apostles are arrested for the second time. They've already been arrested once, and they're arrested again, and they're thrown into prison. And then something weird happens where, according to verse 19, during the night while they're in prison, an angel of the Lord comes up and opens the doors and is like, hey, come here. I'm going to let you out. I want you to go preach about Jesus again. Same place, right over there. They're like, let's go. And so they go. And so the, the Sanhedrin is gathering. You should read this on your own this week. The Sanhedrin is gathering, and someone runs in like, they're preaching again. Like, no, we put them in jail. They're like, cell six, down the hall to the right. Like, they're not, though. The door's open, and they're preaching again. They're like, what? And they go out there, and they're preaching again, and it says that they went and arrested them quietly. They're like, hold on a second. Come with me. And we'll be right back. And then he brings them in here. And they flip out on them again and start yelling at them, we told you not to preach about Jesus. Why are you still preaching about Jesus? Um, and this is where sort of we enter into this passage here. Um, and the response is fascinating. There's this exchange. It doesn't appear that the Sanhedrin is all that mad at first. Uh, and then the apostles say something that set them off. And we're going to talk about that today, um, about what exactly they said. And here it is. I mean, here's where they get mad. And in verse 33, it says, when they heard this, 
They were furious and they wanted to put them to death. What was it that they heard? That's the question today. What was it that made them so mad? What set them off? So today we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about atonement. We're going to talk about the cross. We're going to talk about um, what it means, how to talk about it. I get a lot of questions regularly about um, how now do I speak about the cross if I've deconstructed my faith and I've rebuilt and I have this sort of more sort of ancient sort of orthodox contextual understanding of the scriptures and I understand that Jesus is the word of God active and present and leading us and that we're led by the spirit and not the books not the law how then do I talk about the cross what does this mean and so that's what we're going to do today because this is the thing that set them off is this line about the cross okay um, it says in verse 29 through 31, it says, uh, this, is, this, is, this was their response. They said, why are you talking about Jesus? We order you to stop. And here's what they said. We must obey God rather than human beings. The, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince as, and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive them of their sins. Now, um, this is what made them so mad. And you look at that, and you're used to hearing this story. You're used to hearing this, and you, you kind of think, how could this make anyone mad? So let me build some context for you. Um, there's several things happening here. First off, they say that Jesus is, uh, it, says, it says in verse 31, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince, not like purple rain, like prince. As Prince was a, this was a, a title that the people would give to the high priest. The high priest would have been there in front of Peter and John, sitting in the middle, and they would have been sitting in a horseshoe shape around them. So the priest is sitting there, and the priest is considered the prince of the people, especially on the Day of Atonement, once a year where he would enter into the Holy of Holies and, and offer the sacrifice and spread the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And, um, and the reason they call him the prince is because the prince is the only one. It's the son of the king, right? And the son of the king is the only one who really has the king's ear. And he can walk up and persuade the king of things. And he can say things to the king that would get everyone else decapitated, right? And so he can walk right up to the king and he can say things. And so this is the role of the high priest. He's safe in the presence of God. He's the mediator between God and man. And he can speak on behalf of the people to the king because he's not the king. But he's also not the people. He's somewhere in the middle. And so he can speak on behalf of the people. So he's the priest, and they're calling. So he's, the high priest is, 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 is the prince. And so they say, no, 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 no. Jesus is that prince. And then uh, it says this. It says they refer to Jesus as well as, as one responsible for forgiveness of sins. It says, as the prince and as savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Who was it that brought Israel to repentance in that day? Oh, that's right, the high priest again. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious leaders. They were the ones who stood up regularly in the temple and called out for repentance for the people. They were the ones who entered into the Holy of Holies and said, and basically offered sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. So everything that they're attributing to Jesus were things that the people attributed already to the people standing now in front of them. And this begins to make them irate because these are all the things that made them high status, powerful, privileged people. And they're taking all of the things that gave them their power and attributing them to Jesus. Now, this wouldn't have been a bad thing had Jesus also been a higher status person. In the first century, uh, it's, a, it's an honor and a status culture. This is what matters more than anything. And so you can take, you can say, take nice things that are said about one person and say them to somebody higher uh, and that's a good thing because then you, uh, yourself, your title is being applied to someone higher, which raises your status, right? 
And so you're applying it to someone higher. So that's good for both of you. But that's not what's happening here. Because he says, uh, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus. So Yahweh raised this Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. That is the line right there. It's not just that we're attributing all these wonderful things about you to Jesus. It's that we're attributing all these wonderful things that are said about you to somebody whom you killed and crucified. Not just killed, crucified. Now, uh, it says here, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. That's actually a bit of a deceptive translation. There's no other way to say that, really. like They're making it easy for you to understand what they're talking about. The word translated for cross is not actually... It doesn't actually say cross there in the Greek. Uh, the Greek word there is kailu, um, which is the word for tree. Uh, and that's important for the Jewish people because there's this passage in Deuteronomy in verse, chapter 21 that says, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. The idea that somebody is hung on a tree, the reason they would be hung on a tree in the ancient world, in, in, in the Jewish context, it was the ultimate punishment for somebody who had done the terrible thing, uh, maybe murder, um, the worst things you can imagine, the worst social crimes you can imagine, this was the ultimate penalty uh, that you could give to them to hang them on a tree. It, it, it eliminated all of your honor. It humiliated you and it shamed you. It was the worst thing that could ever happen to somebody. It was, it was the lowest of the low, okay? This is why, by the way, this is why Judas hung himself from a tree. It was an act of penance. He's lowering himself, trying to pay back the terrible thing that he'd done. This is why the, uh, the temple leaders are calling out for Jesus to be crucified. They're not just going to kill him. They're not just going to behead him. Um, they're not just going to strangle him and suffocate him. They're, they're going to give him the shame, the worst shame that you could imagine, hanging him on, on a tree. If a cross was made of something else, if the cross was made of steel or iron or some kind of metal, they would not have opted for that. What they wanted was for Jesus to be hung on a tree, for his shame to be like, for, to be, for him to just be shamed and humiliated. This was what was most important to them. Um, because he's claiming to be above them. He's claiming to be the center of the temple. Um, so for the Jews, the idea that you're hanging somebody on a tree is the worst thing you can possibly imagine. It's the lowest of the low. And for the Gentiles, the cross also was the ultimate failure. It was what the empire did to people to show how weak and, power, weak and powerless that they were. They were... That this little garment would not have been there, stripped totally naked, um, your beard ripped out. It's shameful for, for men in the ancient world not to have a beard, and possibly even today. Um, and it was, it was this, it was, everything about the cross was designed to take away your honor and your shame and to humiliate you. Everything about it for both the Jews and the Gentiles. Everyone equally looked upon the cross in the same way. And so, there the apostles stand, saying, Everything that makes you great, we take and apply to Jesus, whom you humiliated and crucified. So they stand there explaining that these men now, that that now that you have made someone the lowest person on earth, God has chosen that lowest person on earth and lifted him above everyone else, including you. He has stripped all of your titles away and given them to him. This is what God has done for Jesus. And this is why we follow Jesus. And this enrages them. Are you with me now? Like, this is what makes them so mad. Because they're taking everything that belonged to them and giving it to a low-status person. Um, and, and they become irate, and they suddenly want to kill the apostles. Um, now, we're going to talk about this guy, Gamaliel, next week a little bit. We're going to continue sort of, there's going to be sort of a half today and half next week. But 
I want to talk about the cross today, this tree, this what it means to hang somebody on a tree, because we have a lot of questions today even about like, what does this mean? How do I talk about this? I don't know how to talk about the cross because I, I have shifted in my faith and this and that. So that's what I want to talk about. Um, since the medieval period, there has been really a single story told about the cross. Uh, for the last 500 years since the Protestant Reformation, there's been a single story told about the cross. But before the Protestant Reformation, there were lots of stories that were told about the cross. And really, since then, there have been many stories told about the cross as well, many, many meanings applied to it that have been either oppressed or overlooked or ignored altogether by church history. Church history is written by the people in charge. But if you look past those people to a lot of other people, you can see a lot more things happening. Um, and it's important to hear those voices. Um, so this single story is the one that I was raised with. And I can't speak for you the story that you learned about the cross. I can only speak for me. And I received a, pers- a particular story about the cross. And it kind of went like this. And of course, I'm going to build, uh, it's going to be a little sort of hyperbolic, a little bit of a straw man, because it's like my story um, that I no longer hold to. And so we don't, we're not particularly charitable about these things, but I'll do my best. Um, I was raised with a story that kind of said, um, the sins that I committed, even when I was five years old, uh, made God so mad and angry and violent that God had to kill something. Blood had to be spilled for what I did. And so Jesus steps in between me and God and says, you can kill me instead. And so God accepts that sacrifice and God kills Jesus and tortures Jesus and slays Jesus and does to him what I deserved so that when it's all over, the wrath of God could be satisfied. He'd be like, oh, I'm better. That feels better. You can go on now. And that is literally the picture that I carried of God up until about like my mid-20s. This is how I viewed God. And it led me to move through the world in certain ways and interact with people in certain ways. Because your view of God, if you're trying to be godly, you become this. And this has tended to be how I viewed like the world around me. Um, as I just sort of deconstructed this, I realized that, like this is not actually the story that the original Christians actually believed. This is a product of its time, of the time when um, the ideas about 500 years ago were put forth of penal substitutionary atonement. And it made sense in that day because this is what the courts looked like in that day. But the courts did not look like that in the first century. And the people in the first century did not talk about God in this way, especially the first Christians. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk about interpretations of the cross. How should we speak about it? Is there one way? Is there several ways? Um, Is there one way that is most important of all? Um, And I'm going to start with this. Um, In the first century Palestinian sort of Jewish tradition, Interpretation was not one thing. Interpretation was several things. There were several ways of interpretation. You, you, can, you can open up any ancient passage and, and they would talk about it, not just passages of scripture, but also events in Israel's history. And they would talk about them in different ways. Um, they would talk about um, what length can you take this meaning of this passage to? How wide can this be applied? How deep does this go? What's the breadth of, of meaning of this passage? And Paul writes about this, and he says that you may know the length, width, breadth, and width of, of God's love. Uh, and so he's sort of interacting with this. Yes, there were four particular ways that you could, you could interpret the work of God uh, through either the scriptures or 
the story, their history, the history as they retold it. Um, one of them was, was, the first one was Peshat. This is sort of level one. This is, this is the one that most of us use and have been taught to use. We're children of the Enlightenment. We want the facts. We want to know exactly what happened, and we want to read things simply. And so Peshat is the literal and factual meaning. Um, what it literally says is what it literally means. And so we read Genesis this way, we read Revelations this way, and we read everything. Just what it says is what it means, and that's all it means. There's no other meaning to it, and no one should ever read into it deeper than what it simply says. I simply read it, and I do it. Um, and in the Jewish mindset, this was a way of interpreting things as well. It was actually the lowest level of interpretation. Um, if you wanted to go a little deeper, you would enter into the Ramaz, which is the suggested meaning, where the rabbi would have a particular idea about what this meant, and the rabbi would say, now, in my theological construct, I read Isaiah this way, and Jonah this way, and then the words of Job, and he sprinkles those, and, and eventually, through the work of God, I get to this, and so here's what I think it means, and here's how I teach that it means, and so there'd be these schools of thought that had particular ways of reading entire passages of scripture the same, and they would rub up against other schools who were reading it a little differently, and it was okay. They all worshiped at the same temple together. And then you go a little deeper. There was this thing called the Darush, which is the meaning that arrived at after a long and careful investigation. And so we're going to read the history. We're going to, um, we're going to hear from all the traditions, and we're going to go out, step outside of it and look at it from different angles. And we're going to, they would call it turning the gem because as you turn the gem, the light hits it a different way, and it turns a different color. Different rainbow short of shades come out, right? And as you turn it, you see all the different sh- sides and sparkles and different glimmers of it. And this is what they were doing in this particular interpretation, the Darush, the meaning arrived at after long and careful investigation. Read widely on a text. And this is what I try to do every week where I posted a picture a couple weeks ago of, maybe last week, of of the documentaries, of the commentaries that I'm using. And they're not monolithic. They are from um, African-American. There is, um, there's, there's like a grassroots Asian one. There's, um, there's some from a high level of of scholarship and there's some narrative base level scholarship. I want to read everything. I want to know what everybody's doing with it. And I'm looking for veins that run sort of through all of it. Um, and this is what Darush is. And then there's one called Sod, which was the, the allegorical or inner meaning. This is what Origen used the most. Origen, uh, one of the early church fathers from like second and third century, he, he actually said every, he would, he would take a verse and every single word of that verse, he would uh, sort of branch out and make it an allegorical meaning to like tell a different story about God from every single verse in the Bible. He did this all the time. And Irenaeus did this too. Um, and the, allegor- the, the allegorical meaning to them was, and even in the Jewish mindset, was actually the most important one. Um, I would probably argue against that. I personally am a fan of the Darush, but that's okay. Like there's different, the point is there's different ways of interpreting the scriptures and every single text, you could apply all these different things to it. Now, so for the early Christians talking about the crucifixion, what did it mean? Well, that depends on where you came from. And that depends on your worldview. And that depends on, uh, are, you, are you wealthy, high-honored Gentile? Are you, are you low-end, oppressed, fundamentalist Jew? Where are you coming from? When you tell the gospel story, the message of the cross, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, how do you tell it? And what does it mean for you and your people? And this was Okay. And this is frowned upon today. And I don't think it should be. Um, so let's, let's work out some of these things, shall we? Let's, um, I'm going I'm to go deep on a couple of these interpretations of the cross. And then I'm going to skim over some others. And then I want you guys sort of in your house churches this week to gather. And I'm going to give you some thoughts 
to work over as sort of a, a collective group here. So um, there was one ways of reading about the cross and telling the story of the cross was that the cross was a joining of God in their own suffering and exile. This would be specifically a, a Jewish a Jewish Christian understanding of the cross, that God is entering into their suffering. He is joining them where they're at. Again, remember a few weeks ago, I talked about how the life of Jesus, especially in the book of Matthew, follows the life of the people of Israel. There is a flight from Egypt, just like Israel. There is um, the killing of the innocent babies, just like in the Israel story. There is um, a passing through the waters and then spending 40, a measure of 40 in the wilderness, uh, his was Jordan and then 40 days in the wilderness of tempting. And then Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea and then spent 40 years in the wilderness. Everything that Jesus goes through, he's replaying Israel's story in the book of Matthew. He does this on purpose. Um, but he shows them each way that Jesus was successful where they failed, where he was without sin, where they sinned and fell into idolatry. And so we come to the cross and then Jesus is entering into even their own exile and walking into the exile with them. And he's on the cross and he's my father, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting their exile passages. He enters into their punishments though he knew no sin. And they see this. Why is this important to them? Because if you're going to help a people, you have to understand the people. If a people is oppressed and you somehow want to take part in, in, in helping bring them out of their oppression, you have to enter into their oppression with them. You have to stand shoulder to shoulder with them. Listen to their stories. You have to be present with them. Human beings have always known this. Let's just say that you are a bajillionaire and you're not running for president and you are... Um, and you just have a lot of money and you want to help the world and you know a particular group of people and you uh, say, I want to help these people and how do I do that? And then so you come to the decision that I'm going to have a messenger who's going to come and I'm going to write a big check to this messenger. Here's a billion dollars of my gajillion dollars. I want you to take this billion dollars and I want you to fix all the problems with this oppressed people. That's not going to work. You can't throw money at a problem to fix it. If you want to fix it, the bajillionaire must walk away from his house. He must give up his honor and his place of status, a la Jesus, and enter into the place where the people live and live amongst them and learn their ways and be raised up sort of in their mindset and walk with them as one of them, to, to be with them, to feel their oppression um, and to learn exactly what is happening. Why are things the way that they are? And only at that point, when you are familiar, as Paul would say, he became familiar with our sufferings. When you are familiar with the sufferings of a people, only then can you actually do anything to help them. And then you can begin to walk and lead them out as, lead them out as a pioneer, as Paul also says. So like, this is how the story goes. And the, the Jewish people say, God actually entered into our story to free us, to lead us out of our oppression. And this is how this went. So this is one way that they tell the story of cross, the story of the cross in the ancient world. They say, it was God entering into our story to lead us out, our great and powerful leader. Now, there's another way. Um, for others, the cross is a defeat of the powers of this world. And you say, that's interesting. Where is that? Great question. I'm glad you asked. Paul, Paul does, he talks about this when he speaks to Gentiles. Paul speaks differently to different groups. Paul himself sees himself as, as a, a prophet to the Gentiles, an evangelist to the Gentiles where nobody else was. Um, and so in Colossians, he's writing to a Gentile church and he says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, triumphing over them by the cross. So, Paul believes and tells the Gentiles that here's what the cross did for you. The cross has disarmed the powers of this world. 
You, Romans, believe you're so powerful with your armies and your weapons and your economy and your spreading empire. And everyone looks to you as the model of what they should be in the world. And in all the power that they own, the cross has disarmed that. The powers and authorities. How? By making a public spectacle of them and triumphing over them by the cross. So what are the powers of the earth? When we talk about powers, we tend to think like um, uh, the genie, right? The, the, the blue genie. Like cosmic phenomenal powers. Like, like I can do all kinds of weird, interesting magic tricks. Rub it out of a hat. Check that out. Like, um, and this is how we tend to think about powers. But that's not actually what powers are. Powers are the ability to influence and move people to guide the world in one direction. If you are a person who has power and authority, it means you can command a room full of people to do something and they will do it. That is what it means to have power. Now, the powers of the earth, what are they? And how do they get them? Well, they gain these powers. The powers of the earth are by threatening, by imprisoning, by whipping and scourging, by torture, humiliation, and ultimately execution. These are the threats. These are how the empire gets their power. Now, the message of Christianity by the, time of, by, the, by, by the time of the early church is those things are actually no threat at all. And you say, what do you mean? How could that not be a threat? Well, I mean, Jesus was imprisoned. He was whipped. He was scourged. He was humiliated and tortured. Jesus was executed. And he's still our king. They cannot take away his authority over us. And the resurrection has shown this. It was the cross that revealed They did everything that they possibly could to stop this Christian movement. And here we are. And so the cross itself, the ultimate symbol of shame, has disarmed all the powers of the world. They have nothing. They cannot stop us. The powers of this world have no no power over Christ, who is risen and ascended, who is lifted up from the very depth and the bottom of of what seems like hell, and has now been seated at the top, at, at, at the most high spots. And so Christians, as the body of Christ, are also as followers of Christ, living in this way in the book of Acts. And we should be as well. They, they understand. They, they understand. I mean, verse, verse 23, we find them in prison. Oh, but prison can't hold them. The powers of this world cannot stop the people of God. They cannot be held by prisons. They cannot be deterred by being whipped and scourged, like verse 40. Um, they cannot be controlled by any threat, even death, because they follow the one who has conquered all of it, even death. And so they feared nothing. That is a powerful people. That is a people who cannot be controlled, who are running rampant in an empire, who is holding up their military mind and saying, you must fear us or I will kill you. And they say, that used to scare us until our king came back from the dead. We're not scared anymore. We're going to do what we're going to do. And it systematically removed all of the ability for, for, for the Roman Empire to control them. This is the power of Christianity. This is what it was supposed to be. But if resurrection is actually not real, they don't have any power. They are just like everyone else. But they believed in it. And so on the cross, the powers of this world are made weak. They lose their grasp um, on God's people. We cannot be controlled. We are We are martyrs, we are sufferers with and for Christ. And when people are suffering, we will enter into them, stand shoulder to shoulder with them and tell the story of Christ and march out with it while the powers that be surround us and threaten us. And we look at them and say, I'm not even afraid of anything you have to bring to us. 
because Jesus is alive. This is where the power of Christianity came from. This is very different from the story we tell today. They had no fear. They could not be controlled. They were this wild pack of stallions charging through the empire, and there is nothing anyone could do to stop them. Now, um, on the cross, all of this power was made weak and lost its grip. This has been an encouragement to persecuted Christians since the very beginning. From Irenaeus, who wrote all of his writings in a cage on the back of a wagon, surrounded by the animals that he would eventually be fed to, lions and wolves. Like, and he's writing the letters of the church fathers. Like He's writing his letters that we read today. He literally writes, I hope I'm a satisfying meal to them. Like He's not scared. And he even warns other Christians, don't try to free me. That won't do anything for anyone. People will see my faith and they will be inspired to live out their faith. I will show them that there is nothing to be afraid of. And then he fast forward to Desmond Tutu, doing the right thing. He's willing to go to prison for decades, looking out the window saying, this is the right thing. I'm at peace because I'm doing the right thing. God is still my king. I will not be deterred. Now, um, for others, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fly over a couple other ones here. For others, the cross is a mirror held up to humanity. For the Sanhedrin, you picture Jesus holding up a mirror to them as he's hanging on the cross, an innocent man who has done nothing wrong, whom the people love as a rabbi, as a leader, as a teacher, as a prophet, as a miracle worker, as a healer. And they're looking at this man and who's responsible for this? Oh, their own spiritual leaders have done a terrible thing and and Jesus is holding up the mirror. He who has no sin hanging on the cross before you. It was a mirror to expose their shame, their corruption, how corrupt God's people were and how they need a new leader, Jesus and the spirit of God. Um, For others, for devout Jews especially, the cross became an atoning sacrifice. Paul is constantly interacting with these Jewish people who want to continue doing the Jewish laws. They want to continue offering sacrifices. They want to continue bringing down the the tradition, bringing the, the lamb to the temple. And Paul says, you're missing it. That's not what this was ever about. We don't need to offer these sacrifices anymore. Let Jesus be the very last sacrifice that we, ever, that we ever offer. And the high priest is the one that killed him. Don't take any more animals to this high priest. That high priest killed Jesus. Let that be the last sacrifice. It's over. It is finished. No more of this. But when, but when we talk, read about like the, the early converted Gentiles that came to Jesus, we see something different. We see that the cross uh, is the death of all humanity and that resurrection is the birth of a new humanity. Um, in all these pagan rituals, these religions that the, that the Greeks had, the Roman, Greco-Roman culture, um, there's this constant theme that you see where they had a form of baptism where you would enter into like these religions. Um, and the way you'd enter into the religions, oftentimes you would watch a play. But to get into that play, you had to be wearing the garments of, of a new sort of new birthed Roman. So you would go through this sort of ceremony oftentimes, this mystical sort of ceremony where they would sometimes baptize you to symbolize death, sometimes bury you up to your neck and then bring you out and give you new clothes. But it was sort of this thing where you would learn the story of the gods and you would enter in. Um, and for the Gentiles coming in, they, they recognize sort of this, the death, burial, and resurrection story, but in this way that they've never heard it before, a way that makes brand new sense that has never made sense before, this understanding of being what it really means to be born again. And when you travel in, um, in sort of um, Greek Orthodox 
uh, Christian circles, when you, when you sort of look at their iconography, you're going to see certain things. You're going to see, and I've talked about this before, whenever you see an icon, an icon of the resurrection, what you will always see, and you can Google this uh, resurrection icon, you will see different versions of this. You will see Jesus pulling, coming out of the tomb, and at the same time, pulling out Adam and Eve out of the tomb, out of their graves. Why? Because with the resurrection of Jesus, it is a rebirth, a restarting of all humanity in their eyes. Um, and Paul writes about this in the book of Romans. There is, there's this view that, that Adam and Eve, God created them to be the pinnacle of humanity, but they had failed, they had fallen, and they had screwed this whole thing up. But with Jesus, there is a now, now a new Adam, a new humanity. We must be born again into Christ. And Christ is the world, after the, the day after the resurrection, is a whole new place than it was the day before the resurrection, because now real humanity exists. Jesus and God's people who are, who are in Jesus, in the church. They're supposed to be a new people living in exactly the way that God intended for all human beings to live. So they tell the story of like, it's a new, it's a whole new humanity. By the way, if I might, um, I love iconography and I've been sort of like educating you a little bit as we go along in iconography. I wanna offer you two things that will change the way you view icons, okay? Here's one of them. Um, there is a, um, I have to learn it right. I have to say it right again because I always say it wrong. Um, I, okay, I always say Mandalorian, but it's not. It's Mandorla. There's a word Mandorla, but since this stupid Star Wars thing, I'm always saying Mandal. It just it's stuck in my head. So this um, this almond-shaped sort of doorway here is called a Mandorla, a word I used to be good at saying. Um, it's called a Mandorla. Um, whenever you see a Mandorla, an almond-shaped doorway in iconography. Um, that is a message that this is a spiritual event. However, whenever you see jagged rocks in, a, in an icon, in iconography, that means that it's a historical event. So you will see some with just the mandorla and no jagged rocks, and they're saying this is a metaphor, this is a spiritual event. Ancient Christians could not read, could not write. This is how they learned about the stories of God, through iconography. And they would sit and they would stare at them and they would ponder them. And the mandorla means this is a, a spiritual event, but jagged rocks mean this is a historical event. So there are certain events which are both historical and spiritual, fully historical. They happened and fully spiritual, full spiritual meanings, like something spiritual happened. And that's what we have here in this resurrection, okay? It is not only this historical event that disarms the powers of Rome, it is also a spiritual event that gives new birth to, God, to, to all of humanity, um, and I just love that. That's free. That's for you. Um, and every time I show an icon now, look for those two things. You will see them. Um, one or the other. Sometimes both. So um, let's keep going. I, I want to point out to you something that Paul does. Paul has several different ways of talking about the cross. He doesn't just have one way like you have, may have been instructed he has. When Paul is speaking to the Jews, here's what he says in Romans 3.25. He says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. That's how he talks about it to Jews. When you flip over to how he talks about it to Gentiles, non-Jewish people, he says, Christ Jesus, these are Romans, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. A ransom and an atoning sacrifice are not the same thing at all. A ransom was a way that like a, a, a head of a household had a slave and he would buy the freedom for that slave and give him full citizenship and brotherhood in the house and in, 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 the, in the kingdom, in the empire. And so what he's saying is, um, 
You are no longer slaves. God has purchased you and set you free. You are no longer slaves of the gods. You are now um, in the family. You are now one of God's people, an inheritor. No longer just what you thought you were. You're no longer here to slave and slave over the gods. Um, And any slaving you do is voluntary, as as Paul would say. And so um, this is how Paul when he's talking to different people groups, talks differently about the cross because the cross, depending on who you are and where you come from, has different meanings for you individually. Um, If you talk to our African-American brothers and sisters, they tend to speak of it as, yes, God is entering into our suffering and leading us out. He is with us when we are suffering. The average person who is part of majority culture who has not suffered any kind of like systemic oppression or anything um, doesn't have the same grasp on God entering into your suffering, unless you've been through individual suffering, some form of illness, cancer, death, loss of loved ones, and then you speak of God as with you personally, individually in your suffering. But by and large, since there's not necessarily a physical thing that you feel the need to be saved from, you, we make it about the soul. But it can be many things at once, because God is with you in all of it. Um, but the important thing you need to realize is that anytime someone gives a gospel presentation... First off, if it doesn't mention king and kingdom, it is not a gospel presentation. Second, um, if it does, if it ends at the cross, it is useless. It must end with the resurrection and the ascension. Otherwise, we have no king. Otherwise, you have been forgiven of your sins. Feel free to follow any king you'd like in this world and do whatever you want with any nation. Instead, We have been given a God who enters into our story, who feels our suffering, who walks with us through whatever we've been through, who who is uniquely familiar, as Paul says, with your suffering, Um, who has offered the sacrifice, who has gotten rid of the shame, borne the shame that you carry for whatever it is that you have done. There's so many ways of talking about it, and he has risen and ascended to the throne. Oh, look, Mandorla, jagged rocks. Um, there is a way that the ancient people spoke about the cross that wasn't always the same, but it was always atonement. So what is atonement? Atonement is a very important word, but it may not be what you think it is or or how we got it. It may not be what you think. So the word atonement is the word that we all use. Um, There are many different atonement theories um, out there. You can read about tons of them and, and get familiar with them. And depending on what culture you come from, you may have a different atonement theory. Um, there's not one a theory to rule them all, as you might hear. Um, now, the word atonement is this Greek word, um, katalage, and the, the word doesn't really have an equivalence in English. It doesn't have, there's no way to just take this word atonement, love katalage, and say, here's exactly what it means, and we're going to put this on every page every time the word is katalage is used. It's always been a struggle to define this word. Um, enter William Tyndale. William Tyndale was a Bible translator, translating the Bible into English, and he convinced, he's convinced there has to be a way to talk about this word. What does this word mean? How can we come up with a word for katalage that makes sense across the swath of, of its usage in the scriptures? And so he comes up with this, this idea. He's going to take three words, and he's going to make them one word. Those three words are at one meant. I want to be at one with God. This is a word invented by William Tyndale, atonement. Not too long ago. At one ment. How does the cross create at one ment with God? Atonement. How does it 
at one me and God. There are many ways that the cross creates onement with God. There are many ways from different angles as you turn the gem and as you look at the cross from different angles that it awakens you to its power and its meaning and its centrality in our communal lives as Christians. Next week, we're actually going to be talking about what does it mean to live atonement? What does it mean to live as a cruciform people formed by the cross? Um, but atonement is this, how is God and, and, and humankind, how are we made one through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus? And that is what Christianity, what, what the story has always been, what the conversation in Christianity has always been. Christianity is a 2,000-year conversation about what the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus means for us now. What does it mean now, in this moment? God has entered into my suffering. He is the creator of all. He sees and understands my situation. He's familiar. I can continue to follow him. So how do I respond to the threats of the powerful in this world? Um, how do I respond to death? How, how do I respond to all these things? Am I doomed to die? Uh, I am doomed to die. I don't know a way out. Well, I can follow Jesus into death unafraid because he has come out the other side. So like, there's all kinds of ways that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ at ones us with God. And our job is to meditate upon them and ponder them. Constantly coming up with more and more ways that we can liken ourselves to the cross and that we can liken our lives and form it around the things of the cross. There are many ways that the cross of Christ helps us meet God in the struggle for the reconciliation of all things. We should constantly be pondering these things. The message of the cross is that God is with us. And what does that mean is one of the things that we should constantly be asking about. I think one of the things that you guys should be gathering and speaking about this week as house churches is, as Americans, what does the cross say to us? What does the cross mean to a 21st century modern American person? What did the cross represent in that world? What is an equivalent to the cross today? The fact that Jesus entered into this. Maybe the equivalent to the cross today is like an electric chair. Like, what is it about the cross that helps us uh, engage these people and these people and these problems and these problems and what part do we play? The fact that Jesus died on one of these, that this is the representation, the fact that we string this ancient execution device around our necks sometimes and plate it in gold and walk around, like what does that execution device actually say? That the God, that the divine being has given us that that's his image. What does that mean? Ponder these things. Meditate on them. Think about them. Don't just make it one thing that you can now dismiss and then move on with your life however you'd like. The cross is the center of all of it because it leads us to having our king and it shows us how Jesus became king. So in all of this, uh, why don't we take communion? Um, our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and gather the elements and, and spread around the room. And, and I would ask that today, I, I would like for you to ponder the cross. I would like for you to ponder retell yourself the meaning of the cross and maybe affirm that and then tell yourself another meaning of the cross and then tell yourself another meaning of the cross. How does it apply in all the different aspects and areas of your life of struggle, of success, of identity? I mean, you can just, it's sometimes just really good to get in a room and, and riff on these things all day. What does the cross say about 
American identity. Like we want, we want power and money and riches and wealth and beauty. And then God enters into our world and how does he show up? Is it Prince Ali Ababwa? No, it's, a, it's not running an elephant. He's literally like he's, he's stripped naked, beard ripped out, suffering on a cross. The cross is speaking to your idea of beauty because there's nothing more beautiful than the divine creator of all things. And this is how he has presented himself to us. This is, this is how God at ones himself with you. I mean, apply this to even modern, like the things that we see now, like patriarchy. How is it that we speak about and have spoken for centuries about manhood? What does it mean to be a man? God presents himself as a man. As like in that day, the, the, the pinnacle, the one who owns other people, owns property, owns everything, owns the women, makes all the decisions, runs the world. And that man is strung up naked, masculinity ripped out of his face, strung up naked as, as a weak, suffering man, asking another man to take care of his mother. Ponder all of the ways that the cross addresses our lives, our ideas, our sociology, our economics, our prayer, our dreams, our hopes, our atonement theories. Does it shatter them? Ponder these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place. Be with us now as we come to the communion table. Your body has been broken for us. Your blood has been poured out for us. Make us whole. Be with us, behind us, and before us. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. If you need prayer right through these doors in the back here, there will be someone there to pray with you.